A link to the physical books featured and upcoming on this podcast can be found in the description as well as links to other products that will help you become even more awesome. Thanks for listening. Part 2. Six Ways to Make People Like You. Chapter 1. Do this and you'll be welcome anywhere. Why read this book to find out how to win friends? Why not study the technique of one of the greatest winner of friends the world has ever known? Who is he? You may meet him tomorrow coming down the street. When you get within ten feet of him, he will begin to wag his tail. If you stop and pat him, he'll almost jump out of his skin to show you how much he likes you. And you know that behind this show of affection on his part, there are no ulterior motives. He doesn't want to sell you any real estate, and he doesn't want to marry you. Did you ever stop to think that a dog is the only animal that doesn't have to work for a living, a hen has to lay eggs, a cow has to give milk, a canary has to sing, but a dog makes his living by giving you nothing but love? When I was five years old, my father bought a little yellow-haired pup for 50 cents. He was the light and joy of my childhood. Every afternoon, about 4.30, he would sit in the front yard with his beautiful eyes staring steadfastly at the path, and as soon as he heard my voice or saw me swinging my dinner pail through the buck brush, he was off like a shot, racing breathlessly up the hill to greet me with leaps of joy and barks of sheer ecstasy. Tippy was my constant companion for five years. Then one tragic night, I shall never forget it, he was killed within ten feet of my head, killed by lightning. Tippy's death was the tragedy of my boyhood. You never read a book on psychology, Tippy. You didn't need to. You knew by some divine instinct that you can make more friends in two months by becoming genuinely interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get other people interested in you. Let me repeat that. You can make more friends in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get other people interested in you. Yet I know, and you know, people who blunder through life trying to wigwag other people into becoming interested in them. Of course, it doesn't work. People are not interested in you. They are not interested in me. They are interested in themselves, morning, noon, and after dinner. The New York Telephone Company made a detailed study of telephone conversations to find out which word is the most frequently used. And you have guessed it. It is the personal pronoun I. I, I. It was used 3,900 times in 500 telephone conversations. I, 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 I. When you see a group photograph that you're in, whose picture do you look for first? If we merely try to impress people and get people interested in us, we will never have many true, sincere friends. Friends, real friends, are not made that way. Napoleon tried it, and in his last meeting with Josephine, he said, Josephine, I have been as fortunate as any man ever was on this earth, and yet at this hour you are the only person in the world on whom I can rely. And historians doubt whether he could rely even on her. Alfred Adler, the famous Viennese psychologist, wrote a book entitled, What Life Should Mean to You. In that book, he says, It is the individual who is not interested in his fellow men 
who has the greatest difficulties in life and provides the greatest injury to others, it is from among such individuals that all human failures spring. You may read scores of erudite tomes on psychology without coming across a statement more significant for you and me. Adler's statement is so rich with meaning that I'm going to repeat it. It is the individual who is not interested in his fellow men, who has the greatest difficulties in life, and provides the greatest injury to others. It is from among such individuals that all human failures spring. I once took a course in short story writing at New York University, and during that course, the editor of a leading magazine talked to our class. He said he could pick up any one of the dozens of stories that drifted across his desk every day, and after reading a few paragraphs, he could feel whether or not the author liked people. If the author doesn't like people, he said, people won't like his or her stories. This hard-boiled editor stopped twice in the course of his talk on fiction writing and apologized for preaching a sermon. I am telling you, he said, the same things your preacher would tell you. But remember, you have to be interested in people if you want to be a successful writer of stories. If that is true of writing fiction, you can be sure it is true of dealing with people face to face. I spent an evening in the dressing room of Howard Thurston the last time he appeared on Broadway. Thurston was the acknowledged dean of magicians. For 40 years, he had traveled all over the world, time and again, creating illusions, mystifying audiences, and making people gasp with astonishment. More than 60 million people had paid admission to his show, and he had made almost $2 million in profit. I asked Mr. Thurston to tell me the secret of his success. His schooling certainly had nothing to do with it, for he ran away from home as a small boy, became a hobo, rode in boxcars, slept in haystacks, begged his food from door to door, and learned to read by looking out of boxcars at signs along the railway. Did he have a superior knowledge of magic? No, he told me hundreds of books had been written about Ledger Domain, and scores of people knew as much about it as he did. But he had two things that the others didn't have. First, he had the ability to put his personality across the footlights. He was a master showman. He knew human nature. Everything he did, every gesture, every intonation of his voice, every lifting of an eyebrow had been carefully rehearsed in advance, and his actions were timed to split seconds. But in addition to that, Thurston had a genuine interest in people. He told me that many magicians would look at the audience and say to themselves, well, there's a bunch of suckers out there, a bunch of hicks. I'll fool them all right. But Thurston's method was totally different. He told me that every time he went on stage, he said to himself, I'm grateful because these people come to see me. They make it possible for me to make my living in a very agreeable way. I'm going to give them the very best I possibly can. He declared he never stepped in front of the footlights without first saying to himself over and over, I love my audience. I love my audience. Ridiculous? Absurd? You're privileged to think anything you like. I am merely passing it on to you without comment as a recipe used by one of the most famous magicians of all time. George Dyke of North Warren, Pennsylvania, was forced to retire from his service station business after 30 years when a new highway was constructed over the site of his station. It wasn't long before the idle days of retirement began to bore him. 
so he started filling in his time, trying to play music on his old fiddle. Soon he was traveling the area to listen to music and talk with many of the accomplished fiddlers. In his humble and friendly way, he became generally interested in learning the background and interests of every musician he met. Although he was not a great fiddler himself, he made many friends in this pursuit. He attended competitions and soon became known to the country music fans in the eastern part of the United States as Uncle George the Fiddle Scraper from Kinsua County. When we heard Uncle George, he was 72 and enjoying every minute of his life. By having a sustained interest in other people, he created a new life for himself at a time when most people consider their productive years over. That, too, was one of the secrets of Theodore Roosevelt's astonishing popularity. Even his servants loved him. His valet, James E. Amos, wrote a book about him entitled Theodore Roosevelt, Hero to His Valet. In that book, Amos relates this illuminating incident. My wife one time asked the president about a Bob White. She'd never seen one, and he described it to her fully. And some time later, the telephone at our cottage rang. Amos and his wife lived in the little cottage on the Roosevelt estate at Oyster Bay. My wife answered it, and it was Mr. Roosevelt himself. He'd called her, he said, to tell her that there was a Bob White outside her window, and that if she would look out, she might see it. Little things like that were so characteristic of him. Whenever he went by our cottage, even though we were out of sight, we'd hear him call out, Oh, Annie! Oh, James! And just a friendly greeting as he went by. How could employees keep from liking a man like that? How could anyone keep from liking him? Roosevelt called at the White House one day when President and Mrs. Taft were away. His honest liking for humble people was shown by the fact that he greeted all the old White House servants by name, even the scullery maids. When he saw Alice, the kitchen maid, writes Archie Butt, he asked her if she still made cornbread. Alice told him that she sometimes made it for the servants, but no one ate it upstairs. They show bad taste, Roosevelt boomed, and I'll tell the president so when I see him. Alice brought a piece to him on a plate, and he went over to the office, eating it as he went and greeting gardeners and laborers as he passed. He addressed each person just as he had addressed them in the past. Ike Hoover, who had been head usher at the White House for 40 years, said with tears in his eyes, It's the only happy day we had here in nearly two years, and not one of us would exchange it for a hundred-dollar bill. The same concern for the seemingly unimportant people helped sales representative Edward M. Sykes, Jr. of Chatham, New Jersey, retain an account. Many years ago, he reported, I called on customers for Johnson & Johnson in the Massachusetts area. One account was a drugstore in Hingham. Whenever I went into this store, I would always talk to the soda clerk and sales clerk for a few minutes before talking to the owner to obtain his order. One day, I went up to the owner of the store, and he told me to leave as he was not interested in buying J&J products anymore because he felt they were concentrating their activities on food and discount stores to the detriment of small drug stores. I left with my tail between my legs and drove around the town for several hours. Finally, I decided to go back and try at least to explain our position to the owner of the store. When I returned, I walked in and, as usual, said hello to the soda clerk and sales clerk, when I walked up to the owner, he smiled at me and welcomed me back. He then gave me double the usual order. I looked at him with surprise and asked him what had happened since my visit only a few hours earlier. He pointed to the young man at the soda fountain. 
and said that after I had left, the boy had come over and said that I was one of the few salespeople that called on the store that even bothered to say hello to him and to the others in the store. He told the owner that if any salesperson deserved his business, it was I. The owner agreed and remained a loyal customer. I never forgot that to be genuinely interested in other people is a most important quality for a salesperson to possess, for any person for that matter. I have discovered from personal experience that one can win the attention and time and cooperation of even the most sought-after people by becoming genuinely interested in them. Let me illustrate. Years ago, I conducted a course in fiction writing at the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences, and we wanted such distinguished and busy authors as Kathleen Norris, Fanny Hurst, Ida Tarbell, Albert Payson Terhune, and Rupert Hughes to come to Brooklyn and give us the benefit of their experiences. So we wrote them, saying we admired their work and were deeply interested in getting their advice and learning the secrets of their success. Each of these letters was signed by about 150 students. We said we realized that these authors were busy, too busy to prepare a lecture, so we enclosed a list of questions for them to answer about themselves and their methods of work. They liked that. Who wouldn't like it? So they left their homes and traveled to Brooklyn to give us a helping hand. By using the same method, I persuaded Leslie M. Shaw, Secretary of the Treasury in Theodore Roosevelt's cabinet, George W. Wickersham, Attorney General in Taft's cabinet, William Jennings Bryan, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and many other prominent men to come to talk to the students of my courses in public speaking. All of us, be we workers in a factory, clerks in an office, or even a king upon his throne, all of us like people who admire us. Take the German Kaiser, for example. At the close of World War I, he was probably the most savagely and universally despised man on this earth. Even his own nation turned against him when he fled over into Holland to save his neck. The hatred against him was so intense that millions of people would have loved to tear him limb from limb or burn him at the stake. In the midst of all this forest fire of fury, one little boy wrote the Kaiser a simple, sincere letter, glowing with kindliness and admiration. This little boy said that no matter what the others thought, he would always love Wilhelm as his emperor. The Kaiser was deeply touched by his letter and invited the little boy to come see him. The boy came, so did his mother, and the Kaiser married her. That little boy didn't need to read a book on how to win friends and influence people. He knew how instinctively. If we want to make friends, let's put ourselves out to do things for other people, things that require time, energy, unselfishness, and thoughtfulness. When the Duke of Windsor was Prince of Wales, he was scheduled to tour South America, and before he started out on that tour, he spent months studying Spanish so that he could make public talks in the language of the country, and the South Americans loved him for it. For years, I made it a point to find out the birthdays of my friends. How, although I haven't the foggiest bit of faith in astrology, I began by asking the other party whether he believed the date of one's birth had anything to do with character and disposition. I then asked him or her to tell me the month and day of birth. If he or she said November 24th, for example, I kept repeating to myself, November 24th, November 24th. The minute my friend's back was turned, I wrote down the name and birthday and later would transfer it to a birthday book. 
At the beginning of each year, I had these birthday dates scheduled in my calendar pad so that they came to my attention automatically. When the natal day arrived, there was my letter or telegram. What a hit it made. I was frequently the only person on earth who remembered. If we want to make friends, let's greet people with animation and enthusiasm. When somebody calls you on the telephone, use the same psychology. Say hello in tones that bespeak how pleased you are to have the other person call. Many companies train their telephone operators to greet all callers in a tone of voice that radiates interest and enthusiasm. The caller feels the company is concerned about them. Let's remember that when we answer the telephone tomorrow. Showing a genuine interest in others not only wins friends for you, but may develop in its customers a loyalty to your company. In an issue of the publication of the National Bank of North America of New York, the following letter from Madeline Rosedale, a depositor, was published. I would like you to know how much I appreciate your staff. Everyone is so courteous, polite, and helpful. What a pleasure it is, after waiting on a long line, to have the teller greet you pleasantly. Last year, my mother was hospitalized for five months. Frequently, I went to Marie Petrosello, a teller. She was concerned about my mother and inquired about her progress. Is there any doubt that Mrs. Rosedale will continue to use this bank? Charles R. Walters, of one of the large banks in New York City, was assigned to prepare a confidential report on a certain corporation. He knew of only one person who possessed the facts he needed so urgently. As Mr. Walters was ushered into the president's office, a young woman stuck her head through a door and told the president that she didn't have any stamps for him that day. I'm collecting stamps for my 12-year-old son, the president explained to Mr. Walters. Mr. Walters stated his mission and began asking questions. The president was vague, general, nebulous. He didn't want to talk, and apparently nothing could persuade him to talk. The interview was brief and barren. Frankly, I didn't know what to do, Mr. Walters said, as he related this story to the class. Then I remembered what his secretary had said to him. Stamps, 12-year-old son. I also recalled that the foreign department of our bank collected stamps, stamps taken from letters pouring in from every continent washed by the seven seas. The next afternoon, I called on this man and sent in word that I had some stamps for his boy. Was I ushered in with enthusiasm? Yes, sir. He couldn't have shaken my hand with more enthusiasm if he'd been running for Congress. He radiated smiles and goodwill. Oh, my George will love this one, he kept saying as he fondled the stamps. But look at this. This is a treasure. And we spent half an hour talking stamps and looking at the picture of his boy, and then he devoted more than an hour of his time to giving me every bit of information I wanted without my even suggesting that he do it. He told me all he knew, and then he called in his subordinates and questioned them. He telephoned some of his associates. He loaded me down with facts, figures, reports, and correspondence. In the parlance of newspaper reporters, I had a scoop. Here's another illustration. C.M. Napoli, Jr. of Philadelphia had tried for years to sell fuel to a large chain store organization. But the chain store company continued to purchase its fuel from an out-of-town dealer and haul it right past the door of Napoli's office. Mr. Napoli made a speech one night before one of my classes, pouring out his hot wrath upon chain stores, branding them as a curse to the nation. And still he wondered why he couldn't sell them. I suggested that he try different tactics. 
To put it briefly, and this is what happened. We staged a debate between members of the course on whether the spread of the chain store is doing the country more harm than good. Napoli, at my suggestion, took the negative side. He agreed to defend the chain stores and then went straight to an executive of the chain store organization that he despised and said, I am not here to try to sell fuel. I've come to ask you to do me a favor. He then told about his debate and said, I've come to you for help because I can't think of anyone else who would be more capable of giving me the facts I want. I'm anxious to win this debate, and I'll deeply appreciate whatever help you can give me. And here's the rest of the story in Mr. Napoli's own words. I asked this man for precisely one minute of his time. It was with that understanding that he consented to see me. After I'd stated my case, he motioned me to the chair and talked to me for exactly one hour and 47 minutes. He called in another executive who'd written a book on chain stores. He wrote to the National Chain Store Association and secured for me a copy of a debate on the subject. He feels that the chain store is rendering a real service to humanity. He's proud of what he's doing for hundreds of communities. His eyes fairly glowed as he talked, and I must confess that he opened my eyes to things I'd never even dreamed of. He changed my whole mental attitude. As I was leaving, he walked with me to the door, put his arm around my shoulder, wished me well in my debate, and asked me to stop in and see him again and let him know how I made out. The last words he said to me were, Please see me again later in the spring. I should like to place an order with you for fuel. To me, that was almost a miracle. Here he was offering to buy fuel without my even suggesting it. I had made more headway in two hours by becoming genuinely interested in him and his problems than I could have made in ten years trying to get him interested in me and my product. Now, you didn't discover a new truth, Mr. Napoli. For a long time ago, a hundred years before Christ was born, a famous old Roman poet, Publilius Cyrus, remarked, We are interested in others when they are interested in us. A show of interest, as with every other principle of human relations, must be sincere. It must pay off not only for the person showing the interest, but for the person receiving the attention. It is a two-way street. Both parties benefit. Martin Ginsburg, who took our course in Long Island, New York, reported how the special interest a nurse took in him profoundly affected his life. It was Thanksgiving Day, and I was ten years old. I was in a welfare ward of a city hospital and was scheduled to undergo major orthopedic surgery the next day. I knew that I could only look forward to months of confinement, convalescence, and pain. My father was dead. My mother and I lived alone in a small apartment, and we were on welfare. My mother was unable to visit me that day. As the day went on, I became overwhelmed with a feeling of loneliness, despair, fear. I knew my mother was home alone, worrying about me, not having anyone to be with, not having anyone to eat with, not even having enough money to afford a Thanksgiving Day dinner. And the tears welled up in my eyes, and I stuck my head under the pillow and pulled the covers over it. I cried silently, but oh, so bitterly, so much that my body was racked with pain. A young student nurse heard my sobbing and came over to me. She took the covers off my face and started wiping my tears. She told me how lonely she was having to work that day, not being able to be with her family. 
she asked me whether I'd have dinner with her. She brought two trays of food, sliced turkey, mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, and ice cream for dessert. She talked to me and tried to calm my fears. Even though she was scheduled to go off duty at 4 p.m., she stayed on her own time until almost 11 p.m. She played games with me, talked to me, and stayed with me until I finally fell asleep. Many Thanksgivings have come and gone since I was 10, but one never passes without me remembering that particular one and my feelings of frustration, fear, loneliness, and the warmth and tenderness of the stranger that somehow made it all bearable. If you want others to like you, if you want to develop real friendships, if you want to help others at the same time as you help yourself, keep this principle in mind. Principle one, become genuinely interested in other people. (laughs) ¶¶ 